Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, I love that video. It's great, isn't it? It's a, who's the guy with the silly voice, though? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, as Richard said, my name's Aaron. Um, I'm uh, one of the leaders here at Gateway, but, but I'm based up at the Ashley Road site. So if you don't recognize me, uh, that'll be why. So now, this will probably come as a bit of a surprise to you. Oh, just move this. Uh, because I look like a man kind of in maybe early to mid-twenties, but actually, I, pardon? <laughs> actually, I'm uh, 35 years old. And not only this, it dawned on me the other day, being 35 years old, I'm, I'm good at maths, but it means I'm actually in my 36th year. So I am closer to being 40 than I am to being 30 which was kind of a horrible surprise to me when I realised that. And for the whole of my 36 years, though, I've lived pretty locally to here. So uh, I was born in Poole Hospital. Then as a child, I grew up in, in Moordown, um, which is near Winton. Um, then I had a, a brief stint living in Boscombe, which was interesting. Uh, then I moved over to Parkstone, and, and more recently, we now live in Camford Heath. So for those of you not familiar with the area, those of you not familiar with Bournemouth and Poole, you could actually draw a six-mile circle, and you could pop it on a map, and it would encompass all of the places that I've lived. You, you could say, and, and my wife Tash does quite regularly, say that I'm a bit of a Dorset bumpkin. But being a bumpkin means that when I go to a proper city, it's exciting. And I probably notice certain things about cities, particularly big cities like London, that people who live there just take for granted. So there's some good things. So the obvious thing, you go to a city like London, there's lots of choice. There's loads of places to go and eat, lots of places to go and drink, loads of different shops. In, indeed, in London, I read that there's actually over 5,500 restaurants, which means you could go out to eat every single night, and even if no new restaurants were opened, then after 15 years, it would take you 15 years to go to every single restaurant. And then, of course, there's the everyday buzz that you get in cities that, that don't exist in, in smaller towns. So whenever I'm, I'm in London with work, I, I kind of love the pace. So you get off at Waterloo, and everyone's kind of buzzing around doing things, and then at the end of work, everybody's off to the, the shops or the bars, and it feels like everybody is kind of going somewhere with a purpose, it's particularly in the city of London, it's very rare that you see people who are just kind of dawdling around in the middle of the week, like perhaps you do in smaller places like Poole and Bournemouth. There's a sense that everybody has got a purpose. And of course, then there's public transport. And I know that people in cities probably moan about the public transport because it's, it's overcrowded, and of course, there's lots of strikes but at least there is some public transport. You don't need to kind of check a timetable before you head out to get on a tube or a bus, because you know that if you go to these places, that within a couple of minutes, something will turn up. And, and locally, I've got to say, I, I do my, my very best not to use public transport, but I do remember that kind of there's nothing worse than that feeling of you just missed a bus, it's hacking it down with rain, and the next one's not coming for another hour. So that's some of the good things about cities. But of course, there's some less savoury things as well, isn't there? So obviously, the first one is expensive to live in a city. Again, I read that in London, the average house price now is £575,000. 
In order to own a house, you've got to be a half-millionaire. Perhaps more eye-watering, in, in the tr very trendy Shoreditch, it will cost you £7.50 to buy a pint of beer. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's anything that's going to put me off living in a city, that's probably it. And of course, cities have higher levels of crime, and I've got to be honest, £7.50 for a pint of beer, I think that should be classed as criminal, but that's not even included in these statistics. But seriously, all cities, they're made up of, of the very rich and the very poor. And this kind of inequality, should I say, it will often lead, it will be a hotbed for crime. And of course, hand in hand with this, cities generally have higher levels of depravity. Over the last 50 years, in, in this country at least, we've kind of seen a, a, a real swing in what is acceptable from a moral perspective. And it's in cities that you see these boundaries are pushed first, with kind of the, the more rural areas tending to follow after. So all cities, what I'm saying, in a very long-winded way, is all cities have very good things, but they also have some pretty bad things. But today, though, as we continue on in our series in Isaiah, we're actually going to be looking at a tale of two cities that don't follow this pattern. We're going to be looking at one place that is completely and utterly desolate. It's £7.50 a pint, criminality rules away, and it is lost in depravity. There are no redeeming features. And I know what you're thinking, but it's not Southampton. <laughs> this city is the city of man. And then we're going to be looking at another one that is full of life, joy, and diversity. It's a place where all good things are in abundance and are available to all. Now, this city is the city of God. So first up, we're going to look at the city of man. So to begin, we're actually going to be looking at the origins of this city. So rather than turning to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 11. So that will be in page 6 in the Black Bibles. It should hopefully be on your chairs. So Genesis chapter 11, page 6. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city." Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Throughout history, we as humans have constantly tried to create this kind of global village. It began here 
with the, the, the Tower of Babel and the City of Babel. And actually, it still goes on today with all major civilizations seeming to have this desire to make the rest of the world like us, whoever us is. So for the, the Western world, obviously, it's kind of, it's about the spread of, of democracy and capitalism. Perhaps for other parts of the world, it's to see the spread of socialism. And of course, both of these ideologies have some excellent ideals, but neither is perfect. And the practical outworking of these, and, and perhaps more importantly, the, the forcing of them on others, will always ultimately end up in failure. Why? Because the global village that we're trying to create, the global village that those people in Babylon had vision for, is one that glorifies the achievements of man. The global village has no place for God. And for us as a church, this is certainly something that we do well to remember. Our purpose for existence is to glorify and to worship Jesus and to live our lives on the mission that he's called us for. That's to make him famous. And yes, we do this through serving the poor. We do this through loving the community that we're in. Indeed, our vision statement here at Gateway is that we do this through living lives of adventure, purity, and compassion. But as Stephen Covey, who wrote a book called, you may have heard of it, Seven Habits for Effective Leaders or something like that, he, and it's often been repeated, he said this. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for us is Jesus. And if we get lost in doing stuff, even if it's really good stuff, but we forget why we're doing it, then at best, we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. At worst, of course, we're creating a Babel-like tower that's devoid of God. And it is this kind of construction, it's this kind of man-made city with God removed from the equation that Isaiah prophesies about in chapter 24. So let's turn there to see the fate of man. So page 407, Isaiah chapter 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now, of course... You notice the similarities here with the story of Babel. And it shall be with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left, 
The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled, no more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets, the lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth has vanished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Now the picture here is pretty clear, isn't it? One day, the earth, the city of man, and all who belong to her are going to be laid to waste. There'll be no joy, there'll be no laughter, there'll be no celebration, there'll just be darkness and destruction. Why? Because as it says, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So who are the they that this is referring to? Who, is the, who are the they that have done this? Well, it's anyone that's ever sinned against God. As Romans 3.23 helpfully tells us, that's all of us. Which means that all of us, as inhabitants of this city, face this judgment. As we read, there's no distinction between slave and master, buyer and seller, lender and borrower. Collectively and individually, we're all guilty of breaking this everlasting covenant. Which means all of us, by our own rights and actions, are destined for the desolation of this city. Which can sound a bit harsh, can't it? Most people that I know, most people that I associate with, would probably lay claim to being kind of pretty good people. And by certain standards, they'd be doing this with some level of justification as well. But the irony is, is that this is what we've asked for. On an individual level, every time that we sin against God, that is every time we say, I don't care what God wants for my life, I want to do it my way. Every time we do that, we're effectively saying, I want control over my destiny. I don't want God to be in charge. And on a collective level, when we seek to build Babel-like empires and become enamored with our own intelligence, as we do this, we're saying to God, we don't need you. We've got this covered. Which is what the city of man is. It is a place where God has been removed from the equation. His goodness then... His protection is no longer evident. It's what we've asked for, so it's, we really can't complain if that's what we receive. But as I've said, there are two cities that Isaiah prophesied about. There is this city of man, but gloriously also, there's the city of God. So if we could turn forward to chapter 25, we'll pick it up from verse 6. It's page 408. Verse 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And it will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. It will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the God, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Then jump forward to chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Now this city, the city of God, sounds like a far more appealing place to be, doesn't it? And often when we think of a kind of a future city of God and maybe we talk about heaven... We kind of, it kind of evokes images of kind of this kind of ethereal place, maybe where we're floating around on clouds, and it's all very spiritual, and there's kind of heart-playing babies and all that sort of thing. But actually, the picture that we've got here is very different, isn't it? It sounds very physical and very tangible. It sounds very good. There's going to be an abundance of food and wine. Now, just a glance at me will tell you that that's the sort of thing that I like, like to look forward to. And not only that, but this place, death will be a memory. God himself will wipe away our tears. In all of our current hurts, we'll be comforted. And we'll know perfect peace forever. You look at the great cities of history, maybe Babylon, Rome, Constantinople... They were all flattened. One day, the same will be said of London, New York, Moscow, Paris. But the city of God will stand for all eternity. So you might well ask now, well, how can I become a citizen of this place? What differentiates those that end up in the city of God from those who are destined for the city of man? Well, the simple answer is Jesus. This series that we're working our way through, called Isaiah, sorry, on Isaiah, is called King, Servant, Conqueror. And it's precisely because Jesus is these three things that we can belong to the city of God. It was dying at the cross that Jesus conquered sin and death. As we've just read, death has now been swallowed up. This brings us total freedom. We can be redeemed of our sins because Jesus has paid the penalty. Death no longer has any power over us. He is our conqueror. And in becoming a man and coming to this earth in full vulnerability as a baby, living a life of full submission to the Father, in doing this, Jesus is our servant. He's given us the righteousness that his perfect life achieved. 
And he didn't need to do this to gain righteousness for himself. He has eternally been righteous. He's perfect. This was done entirely in service for us. And because Jesus is king of the city of God, we too have the keys to this city. Romans 8 verse 16 says this, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now this is the most mind-blowing thing of all. Not only do we have access to the city, but it says here that it's our eternal inheritance. It's ours. We own it. It belongs to us. And I know this can kind of feel a bit abstract because it's a city that we can't go to right now and visit. But I guess one way of maybe kind of visualizing it, think of your favorite city in the world. It might be, I don't know, Paris or or Milan, New York. I mean, it could even be for some of us somewhere like Disney World. Think of that city. Now, the city of God is not only infinitely better, but it's also infinite. It will go on eternally. And it's yours for the taking. It's your inheritance. Now, this is something that we should be marveling at. But to receive this inheritance, what we've got to do is we've got to accept Jesus as these three things, as our king, as our servant, and as our conqueror. Which means he must be king over our lives. We can't have any kings above him. Isaiah 27 verse 9 tells us this. Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. Our sin can be dealt with, but he is to be our only king, our only God, the only one that we're to worship. And of course, we don't have altars that we offer sacrifices to at, but that doesn't mean that we don't have other kings, does it? Because When all is stripped away, what is it that sits behind your motivations? It might be another person. It might be the pursuit of happiness. It might be fulfillment in your work. Whatever it is, if there's anything in your life that dictates your actions, that tells you what to do, then that is the thing that is your king. But to receive the eternal inheritance of the city of God, we read here, our only king is to be Jesus. And not only that, but we have to accept Jesus as our servant as well, which kind of sounds quite easy, doesn't it, to have a servant? But surprisingly, having Jesus as a servant isn't as easy as it sounds, because having Jesus as our servant, as the one that attains righteousness for us, means one thing that's obvious, doesn't it? If Jesus has attained our righteousness, then we can't do it for ourselves. Having Jesus as our servant requires us to have the humility to accept that we need him, to accept that we're not good enough to to earn God's approval, to realize, actually, that we're no better than anybody else. Having Jesus as our servant 
means that we need to recognize that we need grace as much as those people in society that we would like to condemn. Rather ironically, having Jesus as our servant means that we're to be servants to everybody else. And we also, of course, need Jesus as the conqueror of our enemies. Now, for, no doubt for some of us in this room, our greatest enemy at the moment will be a habitual sin. And the thing that is so gripping about sin, the thing that is so gripping about habitual sin, is it's so shameful that we shy away from God and try to deal with it on our own. Now, you're never going to win the battle doing this. You just drift further and further away, getting more and more into a muddle. Excellent noise. (laughs) But Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated death. Meaning that we're free. So we can take this stuff, this sin, to him daily. And by the power of the Spirit, we can defeat it. And this goes for any battle that we're fighting. It may be sin. It might be fear and anxiety. It might even be financial but we need to bring it to him, recognizing that actually Jesus is bigger than whatever battle we're facing, whatever problem that we have. And that if we trust in him, he can defeat it. Jesus is to be our conqueror. And one day, we're going to know Jesus in the fullness of all these roles as our king, our servant, and our conqueror. But what about right now? What kingdoms are we? What kingdom are we citizens of? To which city do we belong? Because when I look around me, I don't mean specifically right now, but when I look around me, all the evidence suggests that I belong to the city of man. Now, of course, we're all hugely blessed to live in in this place at this time because actually we're kind of experiencing a level of comfort that, that throughout history people have not felt. But actually... The reality is, this world is in total chaos. And there's kind of the obvious stuff, isn't there? Like what's currently going on in, in parts of Syria, and particularly what's going on in Aleppo at the moment. Or, or just the fact that worldwide, I read that over 3 million children every year are dying of malnutrition. Or there's a people trafficking epidemic. You kind of look around the world and you say, yeah, this world is in chaos. But it's not just in places thousands of miles from here. Even if you look closer to home, we see this truth in our increasingly godless society. Because we're in a place now where the rights of the individual have become paramount. And actually, each of us are kind of becoming our own gods. We're able to do as we please, regardless of the impact it has on those around us. We live in the city of man, but the final judgment is yet to come. And if we turn back to chapter 24 of Isaiah, shining out in the midst of the doom are these surprising verses. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From from the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. We see here, in amongst the city of man, are citizens of God's kingdom, praising his name and making him known. And although we don't yet inhabit it, 
as part of our inheritance, it means that we too are now citizens of God's kingdom. And as citizens, we're called to proclaim and to bring the kingdom of God to this earth, here and now. Because this is what we read the disciples doing throughout the book of Acts. They didn't sit around moping that the world's a terrible place and kind of hunky down and and kind of stay away from it, did they? Rather, they kept their eyes on Jesus and they did what he did. They cared for the needy, they healed the sick, and they preached the gospel, seeing people radically changed as they encountered him. And as we look this morning at the city of God, we should do so likewise with this kind of optimistic, adventurous faith. Doing these things, and doing them expectant that God will do them through us because we've received the very same Holy Spirit. The city of God has not yet come in its fullness. And of course, we look forward to the day when it will. But as Paul said in 1 Philippians 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the same should be true for us. Whilst we're living in the city of man, we're to be doing Jesus' work. Sure, when we've died, we've got this incredible picture of what an eternity with God is going to look at but we're not to spend our time daydreaming about this because the work is not yet done. This abundant city should be a motivation to us, just as the desolate city is as we look at the warning it brings us, that this is a judgment for those that don't know Jesus. That's what they're going to face. But it's not too late because God has delayed this judgment. And we should must not we cannot lose sight of the fact that that is why we're here the reason for our current existence on this earth is to be used by god to draw into a city as many people as possible to show people jesus our king our servant and our conqueror let's pray Yeah, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have achieved what we cannot. Lord, that you have lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father, meaning that we can know you, meaning that we can come into your presence, meaning that we can look forward to an eternity living in your kingdom, living in your city. And we pray, Father, this morning that we would know by your Holy Spirit the truth of that, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we look around us and we see the, the city of man, the kind of the brokenness of the world that we live in, Lord, I pray that, that, that by your Spirit we would be bringing your kingdom into this place, Lord. We want to be a people that is like Jesus. We want to be a people that cares for the needy, a people that heals the sick, and a people that sees lives changed because of your gospel. Help us in this, Lord Jesus. Amen.